0: Overdrive.
1: Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a programme about the facts, the fun and the fiction of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this programme we look at news stories with David Campbell including the National Motor Museum to receive a $200,000 grant for a classic old racing car, and they win a national award for their Bush Mechanics Exhibition. We report on the announcement of another American pickup car to come onto our market, the Ram 1500. We road test the Tesla P100D Model X, A 2.4-tonne SUV, which will outperform most supercars in a straight line, just don't look at the build quality. And Brian Smith, Errol Smith and I take a playful look at some unusual stories of the day, including what happened to teen car culture and the return of the Lagonda, once an ugly duckling, now a modern electric vehicle have a question or a comment send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au you can listen to this and past programs by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the program on itunes or your favorite podcast service now to begin the program let's have the news
0: Motor vehicle sales for May have been released and Toyota continues to lead the pack with sales over double that of its nearest rival Mazda. Hyundai was third. However one interesting point is the continued rise of Korean automaker Kia. Kia is up 10% for the month but since 2014 the company has experienced an impressive 95% increase in Australian sales. In May for the first time Kia outsold both Holden and Volkswagen. Kia has 10 vehicles, from the small Picanto through to the recently released Stinger, as well as SUVs and people movers. Last month, sales totaled just over 100,000 units, down slightly from the record-setting 102,900 sales in May of 2017. In year-to-date sales, the industry continued its growth, showing a 2.1% gain for the first five months of 2018, compared with the same period last year. SUV sales in May increased by 8.4% over the same month last year. Light commercials dipped by 0.5% and passenger cars declined 15.6%. It used to be said cranes on the skyline were the sign of a strong economy. But an upbeat treasurer, Scott Morrison, has linked Australia's highest level of economic growth in almost two years to a growing number of utes on the road. Mr Morrison said... That every time an Australian sees a ute driving around a suburb of one of our metro areas or regional towns with a phone number on the side, that's a sign of a stronger economy. We are seeing this played out with all of our trades. We're seeing it played out across the economy, he said. The economy grew by 1% in the March quarter, which was double the rate of the increase in the December quarter. The National Motor Museum has been granted $200,000 from the federal government's National Cultural Heritage account to assist with the acquisition of the classic race car, the Chamberlain 8. The Chamberlain 8 is an Australian special and is one of Australia's best documented and preserved Grand Prix cars. First built in 1928, it was an ingenious concept of famed engineers and brothers Bob and Bill Chamberlain. The Chamberlain brothers, who successfully went on to manufacture tractors, were among a group of prominent engineers who significantly contributed to Australia's technological and motoring history. The vehicle and the accompanying historical items have been independently valued at $320,000. The museum's target is to raise $260,000 for the acquisition and has so far raised close to $255,000. The National Motor Museum has won a major national award for its innovative Bush Mechanics exhibition at the 2018 Museums and Galleries National Award Ceremony. The exhibition is based on the popular TV series Bush Mechanics, which first aired in 2001 and has been viewed by millions of Australians. It was centred around tricks used to keep cars driving in the bush by young Walpiri men from remote Central Desert communities. Featuring original cars and objects from the series, new and old footage, and a number of interactive displays, the exhibition has been touring nationally since 2017 and is currently on show at the Melbourne Museum. Recently, Nissan celebrated the 100,000th delivery of the Leaf electric car in Europe in a move hailed as a victory for electric mobility. Globally, over 320,000 Nissan Leafs have been sold, making it the most sold EV in the world. The new Nissan Leaf is the first Nissan model to feature Nissan's ProPilot and ProPilot Park technologies and is equipped with the e-Pedal, which allows drivers to start, accelerate, decelerate and stop simply by increasing or decreasing the pressure applied to the pedal. Apparently a new Nissan LEAF is sold every 10 minutes in Europe, however the vehicle is currently not available for sale in Australia. General Motors and Honda have announced an agreement for new advanced chemistry battery components to accelerate both companies plans for all electric vehicles. The next generation battery will deliver higher energy density, smaller packaging and faster charging capabilities for both companies future products, mainly for the North American market. Under the agreement, the companies will collaborate based on GM's next generation battery system with the intent for Honda to source the battery modules directly from GM. The companies already have an existing relationship around electrification, having formed the industry's first manufacturing joint venture to produce an advanced hydrogen fuel cell in the 2020 timeframe. And that has been the news.
1: there's a new Ram pickup on the market, the 1500. Ram is a standalone division of Fiat Chrysler automobiles. Ram already has two larger models in Australia. Although the 1500 is smaller than the other two, it is still big. So where does it fit into the Australian market? As more and more people buy utilities, it's harder to stand out from the crowd As caravans and boats get bigger and weigh down with more features, some owners are pushing the limits of the towing capacity of the traditional utility that dominates the segment, and having a dual cab is a very popular choice among ute buyers, but you compromise the space for the rear seat passengers and the room for carrying loads. So here is an opportunity for the bigger American pickups. The Ram 1500 is not a rough and tough off-roader, it has four-wheel drive, but it is not aimed for bush bashing, rather for big jobs, and it makes a power statement. It's 5.8 metres long and a little over 2 metres wide. It has a 5.7 Hemi V8 petrol engine with 291 kilowatts and 556 newton metres. All this grunt goes through an 8-speed automatic gearbox. Depending on the final diff ratio, it can tow up to 4.5 tonnes. That's one tonne better than the best of the traditional utes on the market. Ram Australia claims a fuel consumption figure of 9.9 litres per 100 kilometres combined cycle, which seems pretty good for a large petrol engine V8. It is assumed that this would be measured with the tallest diff ratio. It has two body styles and two trim equipment levels. There is the express that comes with what they call a quad cab. There are two rows of seats, but the space in the back is a little cramped and you sit upright with a straight back. But then again, this is similar to most dual cab utes on the market And with the Ram, you get a tray that is a tad over 1.9 metres long, which is 6 foot 4 inches in the old measure. It has a 912 kilogram payload in the tub. The Laramie upmarket model comes with what Ram calls a crew cab. This seats five people with a lot of comfort and with a lot of legroom in the back. The rear tray is 1.7 metres or 5 foot 7 inches, with an 885 kilogram tub payload. The back of a utility is not always that useful if you have objects that can roll around. An option for the 1500, as for other RAM models, is the RAM box, which has two 240 litre lockers on either side of the tub that may be used as secure storage or as part of ice-filled cool boxes. On the bigger RAM models, 30% of Australian customers have taken this option. This compares to less than 15% of American buyers. Perhaps in Australia, we are currently selling to the practical end of the market, when America sells more to those who want to just look good. The RAM 1500 has been refined for Australian conditions. It's built in North America and then remanufactured on a brand new state-of-the-art production line in Melbourne. This includes making it right-hand drive. The Express, which has a quad cab, has a driveway price of $80,000. The Laramie, which has a crew cab, is $100,000 plus on-road costs. They come with a three-year or 100,000km warranty, three years roadside assistance, and the service intervals are 12 months or 12,000km. So, who will use it? The tradie who needs to carry or tow some relatively heavy equipment. People with recreational activities that require large apparatus, such as a big boat or a sizeable horse float. The owner and or manager that wants a vehicle that announces their presence. Or the holidaying couple or family who wants to tow as big a caravan as they can. With an advertising slogan of eats utes for breakfast and a desire to make Ram the Harley Davidson of utes, it is obvious that they see the vehicle as providing a strength of character that is undermined for the smaller utilities on the market that are becoming more common. And you can see a video we produced about the new Ram 1500 on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, this week I had a drive of the Tesla Model X. That's their SUV. A pretty sizable one with big gull-wing doors on the side, among other things. Its most visible aspect, as well as that typical Tesla front nose, which is, without a radiator, without the need for a radiator, is a little different, but not as different as it might be. Errol Smith, our colleague, came and had a look at it as well, and Errol joins me on the line to have a chat about it. How much are they
2: worth, Errol? I priced up the one that we drove, which was, of course, the top of the line P100D. It will get to 100 kilometres an hour in 3.1 seconds. For a 2.4-tonne SUV, that's pretty good. You pay for that performance. Hmm. The online calculator is suggesting the driveway price is a little over $280,000. Now, that's just for the standard model. We had a couple of options on it as well. I did tick a couple of boxes. Hmm. It's got a couple of extras in there.
1: Six-seat cabin, I believe that's about over $8,000 in cost.
2: Yeah, so we had the six-seat interior, which is another $8,500. It also had the um, autopilot, which is $6,900. If you want the full self-driving capability, that's another $4,100. And up in that kind of range, the luxury car tax alone, because it lists it separately, is almost $45,000.
1: 22-inch wheels, I think they can cost, well, over $7,500 extra.
2: Yeah. It starts to get near 300 plus on roads is not impossible. Yes, absolutely. Doing some car shopping recently with a friend of mine who was looking at luxury SUVs. And so I know from experience, for that kind of money, you can buy three top-of-the-line Jaguar (laughs) e-paces. You could even get four pretty reasonably specced Lexus uh, NX200s. It's a huge amount of money for, um, that's T badge. It has the ludicrous, in fact, it has the ludicrous plus mode
1: that when you have to, you can't just press a single button, you've got to hold the button so that you really know you're going to do it. The screen goes into the bright flashing and then up comes the sign uh, which gives you the final choice. On the left side is, no, I want my mummy and on the right side is, no, bring it on. (laughs) The inside of it, it has, like the Citroen Picasso, where the people move at the windscreen uh, sweeps back almost over your head to give mm. you a sort of panoramic view, which I quite like. Some don't. You've certainly got to wear a cap if it's very bright day. But the other ludicrous thing about it was the sun visor came out and it was a piddly little thing that looked like someone's elegant little moustache that went across in the middle of the screen. $300,000 inside is not what I would call plush. It's comfortable to a degree, but it's certainly not elegant. The
2: build quality on the outside is not good either, really. Although they are backing themselves, so you get a, an eight-year warranty with uh, many of their cars. One of the reasons is being all electric is that you don't have near the number of moving parts in the engine. Pretty
1: much got one moving part. <laughs> yes, perfection or perfecting these types of things is a bit hard. Let's finish on one thing. You did say it can accelerate better than most supercars, and you felt the
2: acceleration. How did you react to that, Errol? With fear. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is in supercar territory. 3.1 seconds to 100 kilometres an hour from a a standstill. Well, it's well into it. Leave a Mustang behind. Oh, yeah. And it's a people mover. It is the world's fastest accelerating production SUV. It was great maybe for once or
1: twice, but I'm not sure I want to live with it. The only thing about it as well is that it is very throttle responsive. As soon as you touch the throttle, the torque is there, which is what an electric motor is about. But also when yeah. you back off, it had regenerative braking. So it was using the engine to recharge the battery.
2: So it slowed down very quickly. Put it this way, the the first thing that popped into my mind as the car was rapidly accelerating was I hope the brakes are as good as the power <laughs> the power is <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's for early adopters, isn't it? It's early adopters who have a lot of money burning a hole in their pocket. Errol, lovely to talk to you. We were talking about the Tesla
1: P100D Model X SUV, 2.4 tonnes of rocket ship that has been built perhaps a little bit more like a Soviet rocket than necessarily the more latest space shuttle. Errol, thanks very much for your time. No worries, David. And we'll talk some quirky news after the break. You're listening to Overdrive. And it's quirky news time again, and we are joined by Brian Smithgate. Brian. G'day, David. And Errol Smithgate.
2: Errol. G'day, David. Brian. Errol, you have an issue of culture. Yeah, well, David, something's missing in today's teenage culture, and especially in the US. Uh, The car, the right of passage and independence that came from getting your licence and first car, is rapidly fading due due to a combination of pressures. It's basically impossible to buy an old clunker and fix it yourself these days. And then there's the smartphone and social media giving less reason or need to get out of the house in the first place.
3: It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, what makes teen car culture? You mentioned a few things there. One, tinkering, getting an old vehicle and doing it up and tinkering. And the other one around sort of mobility and social status. Which are they? I mean, I think some of them, some teen car culture is is imposed and imported the kind of you know us movie kind of view of road trips and things like that but but i must say i I do remember fondly my experiences with old cars and it was really around that combination of of tinkering and freedom and um I guess the same sort of thing would have occurred as, as horses and buggies were introduced and the wheel and that sort of stuff. So where is it heading? Do you think it's a, it's a negative thing or just another phase? You talk about the horses, of course, the image
1: of the young four-year-old who learned to ride a horse on the farm is a, a wonderful image of the very young achieving something that we associate with the more adult
3: Yes, going into adulthood. Yes, via the motorcar.
1: If you look at the parade for the opening of the Harbour Bridge, about third in the parade is a young nine-year-old on a horse. All right. Who rode a thousand kilometres, took a month to do it, and just had said to his dad, "I want to go and do it." And the dad said, "Oh well, okay, off you go." Hopped yeah, see on his you later. horse. Uh, and turned up in sydney a hero so it was that great getting away from the home wasn't it that american graffiti i love that movie
3: yes
2: yes
1: that really defined it as a culture but a culture around an experience brian you're coming from the other side too that experience is both
3: the practical learning as well as the liberation that it gives you well, David, I remember in high school that, um, you know, getting towards year ten, such a high proportion of the kids in the school, the boys, their plan was to become apprentice mechanics, lots of them. That was like a major employer, small repair companies to do repairs. Now that doesn't really happen anymore, and a lot of a lot of car servicing and work is done with a computer. So, but I, I guess yes, it was a, it was a definite. Cars dominated a lot of social life and our careers and the way we saw ourselves. So the the freedom of having your first car, the the hey charger thing as cars oh, drove yes, past and yes. remember that yeah. hey charger. It was an absolute heyday of that when I was a school kitty, and it annoyed charger drivers no end. You know, to have everyone shouting hey charger, doing the fingers to them. So yeah, I, I can see this um, this sort of yearning for these old days and but I think the we're heading into the broad sunlit uplands of a more uh, sustainable and environmentally conscious youth maybe they'll have other things to fulfill them
1: I think some of them may well be that campaigning but I'm not sure so many of them are so honorable in their intent not that I condemn them a lot of people in my youth were hardly socially conscious in their approach (laughs) But um, isn't yes. it interesting, we're back to art again because it was Ben Quilty, the award-winning artist still alive in Australia, who painted old Tyrannus. Yes. And I don't mean painted the car, but actually did a, a on-canvas picture of Tyrannus. And clearly he, he was affected very much by cars in defining his life. Okay, so American graffiti was really... The American exaggeration wasn't it? It was the big car yeah. and the wings and and that hot rods, yeah, hot rods. My early driving was purely utilitarian that it was a way of getting around and perhaps being able to park as well that 's another story <laughs> well, I mean the Tirana was was a quirky car rather than an elegant car. Although it then did become big and ballsy, didn't it, with the V8s and so on? Yes, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it was not ostentatious necessarily, but it was certainly character. Whereas I think mm. a, a lot of American cars are almost ostentatious; they're sort of over the top. If you know one bit of chrome's a good idea, then twenty bits must be twenty be- times better.
3: They don't let the character develop uh, organically, do they? No, nah, yes. They they try and impose it.
1: Cars, to some degree, then, are becoming a bit, in some areas, white goods. Perhaps the biggest indication of this is I don't see as many people naming their cars. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm. Either a personal name or, as I call my car, the rocket.
3: <laughs> Irony. Perhaps ironic, yeah, yeah. yeah. But once we move to to sort of autonomous vehicles, then they'll be uh, they will truly be white goods.
1: Yeah, I think your point about social media is interesting too, isn't it? That you can swap a huge amount of information
2: without leaving your bedroom. There's some things that you can only swap when you actually meet someone. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's <laughs> what parking was about, I believe. Yes, yes, They're straying uh, into dangerous areas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, we are. Well, it's an interesting point, isn't it? that that it's not just that they are changing their mobility, but they're changing the culture as well. Now, Brian, you have
3: a story of an oldish name coming back. Yes, David, we were just talking about autonomous vehicles. And and this old vehicular name, old car name coming back is coming back in a new and modern way. It's, it's zero emission, electric and Designed to operate fully autonomously, the full sort of level four autonomy. Now, it's an interesting brand that's coming back. It's Lagonda. Now, Aston Martin in the 80s sort of launched the Lagonda onto the world. It it kind of looked like um, one of those 1970s Volvos, the big square sort of long things that had been shoved into a mangle, you know, into a ringer and and, and sort of made very much uh, thinner. Than the original, and then they they made an incredibly ill-advised move to turn one of them into a station wagon. Oh, that was so ugly. You can Imagine a very low, long sort of car, which looks like a, a hearse for small people. So horrible. The question is, Lagonda is is um, relaunching in Australia and New Zealand, and they intend to um, to relaunch the, the car as a as a super-powered electric vehicle with um, a driving range of potentially 644 kilometres and as I said it aimed to be a fully autonomous vehicle. So the Chief Executive uh, President and Chief Executive Officer Andy Palmer of Aston Martin uh, went to some quite long lengths to discuss the purpose of bringing the Lagonda back. He said we believe people associate luxury in their cars with a certain traditional an even old-fashioned approach. Now, this is starting to sound like bad news that we might get the old Lagonda back. This <laughs> is uh, because to date, that is all that's been available to them. But, but a little bit of sun comes out because he says, Lagonda exists to challenge that thinking and prove that being modern and luxurious are not mutually exclusive concepts. I don't know that anybody has actually said that they are mutually exclusive concepts. He's making it up as he goes along. He sees no limits for Lagonda it's going to be a brand for the restless, for those who are anything but happy with the status quo. I'm suggesting, too, that with these words he's, he's indicating there may be uh, complicated service requirements and uh, and poor reliability. That's the business model. You, you, you've got to
1: be different. <laughs> Lagonda is a very old name. It was established in 1906.
3: There are some wonderful-looking cars that have been called Lagondas, hmm. Uh, hmm. and then there's the modern Lagondas.
1: Yep. Well, you, I like your point about a Volvo that's been through the ringer. That nose was very narrow, which made fitting in a V8 engine very hard and cooling it next to impossible. But it was modern. It had a digital display and part of the dashboard. Ridiculous-looking
3: car, a car that should never have made it off the drawing board.
1: Um, Brian, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen, once more for your precious time. Bye, David. Bye, and that was, as I say, Errol and Brian, and we were talking those stories that evoke more than just the mechanical. They evoke the very cultural essence of what transport is all about here on Overdrive. this has been overdrive my thanks to brian smith errol smith david campbell and paul just for their great help during the program overdrive can be heard across australia on the community radio network you can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on itunes or your favorite podcast service i'm david brown thanks for listening